0: Lord, we come before you, and God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you that you call us children. We thank you for everything that comes with that. Lord, and I pray specifically as we dive into this text and look at some of the struggles in these churches in the region of Galatia, God, that we would be able to relate to them. Lord, if there are these things in our life that are going on, uh, things such as idolatry or religiosity, Or the other things this church is struggling with. Uh, God, if that's taking place in our life, I pray that you would use this time and this passage to redirect us, to change our hearts, to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, that you would replace the heart of stone. God, that we would receive these things, that we would turn from anything that's not of you, we would turn back to your grace, Lord. So I pray for a fresh anointing of your spirit on everyone that's here right now. God, that we would We would learn from you. Whatever your spirit has to say to your church, I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, So as we've been going through Galatians, Paul... Uh, generally speaking, has been correcting this church because they've fallen into legalism. They've fallen into religiosity. These Judaizers have come into this region and have spread a false gospel that salvation is not through faith alone. Salvation comes by, yes, putting your faith in Christ, but also keeping the Mosaic Law. And if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised and become a Jew. And Paul corrects him and says, no, that's absolutely... Not true, that's a false gospel. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's not about our works, it's about His work on the cross for us. Only through faith and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ can we be saved. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, in that last section, verses 26 Uh, to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells us all that comes with becoming children of God. He makes it clear uh, that we can only become children of God by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, in His person and in His work through His death and resurrection. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're adopted into the family of God and we become co-heirs with Christ. That means that everything that is the Father's is ours. He gives it to us freely. And there are so many benefits and blessings that come with becoming a child of God. And so, Paul essentially asked them, if you became a child of God, why are you acting like a slave to bondage? Why, if God delivered you from your sin and the penalty of your sin, why do you keep going back to this lifestyle of bondage? He saved you from all of that. Why do you keep returning to it? Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8-20, to 20, is, to con- is going to continue to elaborate on this thought, and he's going to specifically correct them, these churches in Galatia, for turning to idolatry and religiosity, which brings me to the title of this teaching, A Warning Against Idolatry and Religiosity. A Warning Against Idolatry and Religiosity. Why, if being saved by grace, would someone turn back to religiosity and or idolatry? Why? Well, I believe that sometimes believers, as they've been walking with the Lord for any number of days, months, weeks, years, sometimes they grow discontent and their relationship with God. And they think in order to find their joy, and in order to find their happiness, they should or need to turn back to past behaviors. They look at their life before Jesus, and they say, hey, uh, you know, part of it was hard, but there was something about it that I enjoyed. There was something about it that I like, so I'm going to turn from the grace of God, and I'm going to turn to these other false forms of spirituality. I'm going to turn to religiosity. I'm going to turn to idolatry. And if I turn back to these things, maybe things will get better. Maybe I'll be happier. Maybe I'll have more joy in my life. But the sad truth is if we turn from the grace of God, things will only get worse. And they'll get worse and worse and worse and worse until finally we ram our heads into the ground hard enough and long enough that we recognize the only place to turn is to turn back to the grace of God. So this is where this church is at. And Paul, he's going to correct them by speaking the truth in love. He's going to remind them of the salvation they received and the grace that they're turning away from. Let's look at it. It's Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. Okay, So there are different words in the Greek uh, for the word knowledge, okay, this is the word oida. It's o i d a. Uh, it means knowledge by intuition or awareness or understanding or perception. Okay, so generally speaking, uh, this church was had some type of uh, awareness of God. Um, but they didn't really know God, they didn't experience God, they didn't enter into a relationship with God until they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. We were all born with an innate awareness of God. Okay? Each and every one of us were born with this concept that there must have been something or someone that brought me into existence. God has put that in every one of our hearts. Even the atheist. The atheist will cry out to God on his deathbed. Why? Because it's in him. He has this general awareness of God, even if he doesn't, gnoscō experience God. Even if he doesn't have a relationship with God. And though we don't, before we come to Christ, experience God in this relational sense, we do have this, Uh, awareness of God. But this awareness of God is often distorted. This awareness of God is often distorted based on our experiences, based on things that people have told us based on the lies that we believe, whatever the case may be. So before I came to Jesus, almost every night I would pray to a God that I didn't understand and didn't really believe in to take my life. Literally, i said, God, if You're real and You care at all, You'll take my life. You, you, you'll, you'll let me die right now. Okay, If You are this loving God that people say that You are, You'll kill me right now because I was miserable in my sin. Uh, I was miserable in my addiction. Uh, I really didn't want to live anymore, but I didn't have the courage to kill myself. That's what stopped me from killing myself, a lack of courage. But I didn't really understand God. I didn't really know what love looked like. In my perspective, I thought love looked like just wiping me out. Because my thought process, I thought I'll just stop existing. <laughs> God knew I'm not just going to stop existing. I'm going to go to hell. And He's trying to save me from that. See, I had this general awareness of God, but I didn't really know God. I didn't know who He was. I didn't know His goodness. I had this false perspective, this false understanding. Everybody has some sort of understanding that there's a Creator, but until we experience the Creator, That perspective, that awareness is distorted. So he says, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. So he's speaking to a Greek and Roman culture. I have a Jewish culture in there as well, but he's specifically uh, addressing the Greek and Roman culture and the various gods that they worshipped. They worshipped Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite and the planets and the sun and all these various gods. See, even though the people didn't know, experience the true God, they were still worshipping other gods. Why? Because it's Put in our heart to worship. We were all created to worship. This is point number one. We are all created to worship. We are all created to worship. Every single human being is created to worship and will worship whatever we set our hearts on. Whether it's the true God or whether it's a false God. When we think of worship, sometimes we think of what we just did before the service. We think of praise. That's actually praise. Worship, when you look at the Greek, there are several words for it. Uh, But worship, generally speaking, means to serve something or surrender to something. So me worshiping something, it's not just singing songs about this someone or something. It's a lifestyle of surrender. It's a lifestyle of servitude. And He says, before you came to God. You were surrendered to. You were serving all these false gods. It's Romans chapter 1. We see that mankind has been created to worship and they've been worshiping false gods from the beginning and still do now. Romans chapter 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness And unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's inside of them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their Foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Man was created to worship. We will worship anything we set our hearts on. For them, some of them were worshiping animals or or gods that symbolize these various animals or or rivers or or oceans or, or planets or whatever the case may be. It's in us. God has put it in us to worship. And Paul is saying, before you knew God, you were worshiping a bunch of false gods. Who or what were you worshiping before you came to God? You I wasn't worshiping anything. What do you mean? Uh, Yes, you were. You were worshiping something. Again, that doesn't mean praise. What was the focus of your life before you came to God? Maybe the focus of your life was being a good person. It was self-righteousness. Maybe the focus of your life was the pursuit of the American dream. Maybe the focus of your life was, was uh, the pursuit of se- uh, success or prominence or prestige or, or promotion. Uh, maybe the focus of your life was sexual immorality. Maybe the focus of your life was always being attached to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe the focus of your life was addiction. point is, teaches us we were created to worship, and we're going to worship something no matter what. We're we're always going to worship something. What did you worship before God came into your life? This is what Paul's getting at. You you worshipped these false gods before you came to know the true God. Galatians chapter four verse nine. But now after you have known God, that's the gnosko experienced God have a relationship with God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You once had a general awareness of God, but you didn't know God experientially. Uh, But now you know God experientially. God has shown up in your life. I watched you receive the Gospel. I watched God show up in your life. I watched God change your life. He he made Himself known to you. You experienced Him. And then I love how he says this. Or rather, are known by God. We were known by God before we ever knew God. And that's the thing again. Meaning... God experienced us before we ever experienced Him. God knew us before the foundations of the earth. Before He created the world, He had a plan for you as an individual. He he had a plan for you. He knew the moment that you would come on the scene. He knew the name of your parents. He knew the minute you would be born. He knew every hair on your head that you didn't have when, when you were a baby, that you ended up having later on when you grew older. He knew every single thing about you why because the bible says he formed you and shaped you in his in your mother's womb for a specific plan for a specific purpose and the things that have happened in your life he used those things for specific plans and specific purposes but his point here is this god knew you before you knew him maybe an illustration will help imagine a father he goes to an orphanage And he sees this little baby boy and he looks at this little baby boy and he says, that's the one. I I love this one. I'm choosing this one. There's something about this one that I I want, that I desire to be in a relationship with this one. And And so he chooses that baby boy and he plucks him out of the orphanage, saving him from God knows what type of lifestyle. So He takes him and He comforts them, and He raises them, and He grows them, and He matures them. And as He grows them and matures them, that baby boy, He learns who His father is. He learns the love that His father has for Him. But guess what? That father knew that boy and loved that boy before that child was even aware of it. This is the love that God has for us. This is the knowledge that He has of us. Now, I want you to think about that little boy going one day when he grows up, you know what, Dad? I want to go back to the orphanage. I want to return back to the orphanage. I want to live back in the orphanage. Because you know what? I'm not really content in your love. I'm not content with my relationship with you. I would rather be back there. It's like, what? This is... Foolishness, but this is exactly what the churches in Galatia are doing. God knew them. He loved them. He chose them. He rescued them. And now they want to go back to the orphanage. See, God, He doesn't just want us to know Him, He wants to know us. Now you might say, wait a minute, doesn't God know all things? Isn't He omniscient? Doesn't he know everything? Yeah, he knows everything, but that's not the knowledge that he wants to have with us. He wants to gnosco us. That's, that's the text. That's what it means. He wants to experience us. He, he wants us to invite him into every aspect of our lives. The warning Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, he says there'll be that day they'll say, uh, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, I, I never knew you'd depart from me. These people prophesied in His name. These are people that came to church. These are people that served in the church. These people might have been pastors or preachers. And He says, not you didn't know me. I didn't know you. I didn't experience you. Meaning, I kept knocking on the door of your heart, but you wouldn't let me into your life. I wanted to be a part of every aspect of your life, but you kept shutting the door on me. As He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. I want to come in and have a feast with you. I want to experience you and I want you to experience me, but as as long as you keep slamming the door on me, as long as you keep shutting the door on me, you're going to miss out on the feast. You're going to miss out on the blessings. The Galatians, they shut the door on Jesus. They experienced Jesus. Jesus experienced them. But now they're turning away from Jesus. Look back at verse 9. It says, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? They were turning back to a works-based faith. They were turning back to different forms of idolatry. And Paul is warning them. He's correcting them. Why are you turning back to these things? This is point number two. Beware of turning back to idolatry. Beware of turning back to idolatry. We've got to remember, many of these people are saved. He refers to them as the church. Now, just like every church, we know that there are some in the church who are actually saved, some in the church uh, who aren't saved. Jesus tells that, uh, tells that to us through the parable of the wheat and tares. We, sometimes you can't even tell the difference. But these believers, there are some who actually are believers that, that that are turning from the grace of God back to their old lifestyle. And this is something that each and every believer has to be aware of, has to be careful of, that, that we don't turn back to the life that Christ saved us from. There's always the danger. And you know what typically happens? What typically happens whether it's through discontentment or whatever reason why, why we turn away from the grace of God, which we'll get into a, in a second, we usually turn back to the things that God delivered us from. That's in us. That, that's uh, our nature. That's our tendency. We go back to the idols that we're familiar with, in other words. So maybe God delivered you from your pursuits of prominence and prestige and power and success and making a name for yourself and Now all of a sudden you've been walking with the Lord for so many years and you find yourself falling back into that trap. You find yourself always talking about finances and retirement and all these different things and you're talking less and less about the Lord and now it used to be when you first got saved that you were plugged into home groups, you were going to men's groups, you were going to all these Bible studies and now all of a sudden you might come to church once a week on a good week but the rest of my time I'm worried about my business. I'm consumed with my future on this earth uh, i'm investing in, in earthly treasures that are going to perish anyways could be other things could be facebook constantly scrolling i'm spending all this time scrolling looking at people's posts of the day videos of the day could be tv could be video games It could be drugs. It could be alcoholism. It could even be family. We can make family an idol. Not that family is bad to have. Jesus, He he cares about family and He promotes healthy family relationships. But He says, if you're putting those things above Me, then those relationships are in danger. They're bound to be destroyed. That's why He says in Luke chapter 14, If you're not willing to forsake father, mother, sister, brother, spouse, child, whatever the case may be, then you're not worthy to be My disciples. Jesus isn't saying, I want to divide families. He's saying, hey, I want to teach you to have a healthy family dynamic, and if I'm not preeminent in your life, if I'm not the priority, then these other relationships, they're not going to be what they could be. They're not going to be as blessed as they could be. He warns them of falling back into idolatry. There's always the danger for us to fall back into the lifestyles that Jesus saved us from. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be aware of the danger. But why does this happen? Why do we have this tendency to go backwards instead of forwards? Well, there are various reasons. I'd like to discuss a few. Sometimes we go backwards because of fear. We're afraid. Walking with the Lord, it takes too much faith. There's this comfort that I have with my old lifestyle. It's something that I know. I know what to expect. This is what we see with the Israelites in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14. Now, I'll remind you. God had already delivered them from Egypt, delivered them from slavery. Literally, they were working 24-7, seven days a week for 400 plus years without a day off. God delivered them from that lifestyle. He parted the Red Sea. He provided manna from heaven. He provided water from a rock. He performed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He revealed himself to them in so many different ways. He gave them direction through the Torah. Then he says, hey, you're going to enter the promised land. They send the spies to go out, check the promised land. And then it says here in Numbers chapter 14, verse 1, So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness... Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Are you kidding me? After God showed up time and time and time again, you want to go back to Egypt? Yeah, why? They were afraid of the giants. They were afraid of the giants in the land of Canaan. They didn't believe that God could give them the power to overcome the giants. It's like us. We accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Something happens in our life. And then as we start walking with the Lord, we realize, wow, this life as a Christian in a lot of ways is harder than life was as an unbeliever. There are obstacles in this life as a believer. There are giants. There are struggles. There are issues. And then we start going, man... I'm afraid of these obstacles." It was easier just living like an unbeliever, so I'm going to live like an unbeliever. Uh Yeah, there were obstacles back then, but at least I didn't have to live or I wasn't challenged to live this certain standard overcoming obstacles. At least I could put my trust in my idolatrous ways and I didn't have to put my trust in the Lord. Uh, the Uh My unbelieving friends never asked me to do the crazy things that God asked me to do. My unbelieving friends never asked me to have the faith that God asks me to have and sometimes because of fear we fall into idolatry i'd rather trust the gods that i'm familiar with than the god that calls me to walk by faith and not by sight sometimes we turn to idols because of impatience we see that in exodus chapter 32 verse 1 the israelites they raised up the golden calf why because moses he's on mount sinai hearing from the lord getting direction for the people. Only 40 days came pat, went by during that time period, but they couldn't wait. They wanted direction now. They wanted to have a God in front of them that they could see. So what did they do? They had Aaron mold this golden calf. Impatience. Sometimes we turn back to idolatrous ways or our past behavior because we want immediate results. We don't want to have to wait on the Lord. This worked for me in the past, so, so maybe it will work for me in the future. This whole waiting on the Lord thing, uh, uh, I'm tired of waiting. I don't want to wait anymore. If God doesn't show up, then I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And that's what the people of Israel did. They didn't want to wait on the Lord. They lost patience. Their flesh demanded to be satisfied immediately instead of waiting For God and receiving the blessings that He had for them, they decided we're going to worship the idols that we can see instead of trusting the God that we can't see. Sometimes we turn to idols just because our flesh is strong. We want temporary relief, we want immediate satisfaction. Uh, Our flesh demands to be satisfied. And sometimes we engage in certain forms of idolatry because that flesh is just crying out to be satisfied. Maybe it's... Man, I'm going through obstacles in this life and and I'm tired of waiting on the Lord for Him to deliver me from this trial in my life. So I'm going to go back to addiction. Uh, I'm going to go back to drinking. Uh, I'm going to go back to drug use. I'm going to go back to sexual immorality. Because at least then I got temporary satisfaction. Right now, I, I, I'm just waiting, and my flesh wants to be satisfied. I, I might as well satisfy satisfy the flesh. And then we make regrettable decisions that lead us to a place of remorse, that that lead us to this place of dissatisfaction. The thing that we thought that was going to satisfy us, that brought us so much satisfaction in the past, all it does is leave us lacking and wanting with this deep void in our hearts. And we're sitting there before the Lord. What did I do? The flesh is strong. The flesh wants to bring us back to this place of idolatry. The flesh wants us to go back to the lifestyle that God had already delivered us from there are many other reasons why we fall back into idolatry or religiosity or whatever that looks like for you but none of the reasons are good reasons and this is what Paul is getting at how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage I don't think these Christians were thinking yeah we desire to be in bondage When we give into the flesh, when we fall back into past behaviors that are ungodly, when we give into idolatry, we're not usually thinking, man, God, I really want to go back into bondage. I really want to be bound back into this thing. No, what does it happen? It's just, I just want a little taste of it. I just want to see what the world tastes like one more time. I just want to dip my toe in it. I just want to see what it's like again. You know I've been delivered from this thing for 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 a long time, but there had to be a reason why I was doing it before, and times are getting tough right now I'm going through a, a very difficult time period in my life. Maybe if I just dibble and dabble in this thing for a little bit i'll get a, a little relief, a little satisfaction and i'll uh, I'll be good that's where it starts, and then it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows, and just like James chapter one tells us, sin has a goal and its goal is to bring forth death into your life. And that's not always physical death. Sometimes it's relational death. He wants to bring death to your relationship between you and God, your relationship between you and your spouse, your relationship between you and other believers, your relationship between you and coworkers. Sin wants to bring death into our lives. And we don't think, who, who here would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I desire death in my relationship with my spouse. I I desire death in my relationship with my family members. I desire death with my relationship with with God. None of us would say that, but this is what he's saying. Based on your actions, you desire, again, to be in bondage. Your life is showing that you like it there, that, that you want to be in bondage. We're not thinking that. We're just thinking a little dibble, a little dabble. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to harm anything. Paul's saying you're imprisoning yourself, and your actions show that you want to be there. Do we want to be in bondage? Or do we want the freedom that Christ offers? So he goes on and he says, in verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Specifically, they were putting such an emphasis on traditions. They were putting such an emphasis on these uh, customs that were pushed on them by these Judaizers. So, He talks about these days and months and years, these feasts and uh, festivals that had been instituted. Some of these feasts and festivals had been instituted uh, by God. Like you have the Levitical Feast in in, uh, Leviticus chapter 23 that were instituted by God for specific purposes. And, And he's not saying that celebrating these feasts and festivals and holidays and Sabbaths and all these things are bad. He's saying, what's your heart behind this? If you think celebrating the Sabbath, or celebrating uh, Purim, or celebrating uh, these other feasts are going to make you any more right with God, then you're wrong. What's your heart behind why you're celebrating these feasts? Because what they did at this time period is they exalted these feasts to this level that they said, hey, if you don't practice these feasts, if you don't practice these traditions, then God's not going to love you. God's not going to want you. So he says, hey, you got the wrong perspective here. you got to look at your heart behind why you're doing these things. You're observing these days and months and seasons and years, and you think by observing these legalistic things that you're going to be saved. That's not how you get saved. It's like, you know, the Christians that come to church on Christmas Eve and Easter, and they think, hey, I'm gonna, I'll be saved because I, yeah, I growing up, I went to uh, church on on Christmas and and Easter, and those were the two times of the year that I went up. So because I went up, God saw that I went up, and I made a sacrifice twice a year uh, of my time. And though I didn't want to go, I went. So God's gonna acknowledge that, and He's gonna save me. That's not how you get saved, right? I was one of those kids. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. And it's like, oh, okay. God must must love us for doing this. That's not what he's asking us to do. He's not asking us to celebrate uh, feasts and festivals in order to win his affections. He's asking us to be in a relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that having holidays or traditions are bad. It all comes down to the heart. God's looking at the heart. Why are you celebrating these things? Why are you celebrating Easter? Why are you celebrating Christmas? Why are you celebrating these specific holidays? If you recognize that celebrating them isn't going to make you any more right with God, Yeah. If you celebrate these in a way that honor God and bring glory to God, great. Got the Light of the World Festival. Using this holiday in a way to bring glory to God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 11, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. This word afraid in the Greek is phobio. It's where we get the word phobia from. In other words, he's saying is what it literally means. I am terrified for you. He's saying I'm terrified for you. Not just like I'm a little scared. He's saying I'm actually terrified for you. Why? Because your current lifestyle is leading you to destruction. Your current lifestyle is leading you away from the grace of God. And he's pleading with them to turn back to the grace of God. This is point number three. Turn back to the grace of God before it's too late. Turn back to the grace of God before it's too late. He can see that the Galatians are walking towards the edge of a cliff and they don't even see it. They're not even aware of it. They're walking towards their death, doom, and destruction and they have no idea. And Paul is pleading for them. You're going down the broad path, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Broad is the way. Easy is the path that leads to destruction. There are many that go down the broad path. Uh, many people are walking towards the edge of a cliff, and they have no idea. They don't see it. But what's on the bottom of the cliff? They're death, their destruction, their doom. So Paul pleads turn back to the grace of God. He's concerned about their salvation. He doesn't know if they're saved. We'll look into that later when we get to verse 20. He says, verse 11, Lest I have labored for you in vain. Uh, labor. This word, it literally means to, to work to the point of exhaustion. He's saying, I'm laboring for you. I'm laboring for you on my knees, pleading To God, that will change your hearts. Uh, I'm laboring for you as I write this letter. I'm laboring for you through preaching. Now this is interesting. Because this is a church, though there's idolatry here, one of the primary uh, primary problems that's going on is they're so focused on this works-based faith. And now Paul mentions that he's laboring for them. and, And he hopes that his labor is not in vain. Paul helps give us the proper perspective the proper understanding as to where in the Christian faith, grace and works meet. Let me show you. It's First Corinthians chapter 15. In First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Grace taught Paul to labor more abundantly than they all, than, than all of them, than all the apostles. That's what he's saying. Grace is to teach us to be zealous for good works. Grace should produce something in my heart. God, I know I don't deserve to be saved. Nevertheless, because of your everlasting love towards me, you saved me. When I look at the love of Christ and what He did for me on the cross, I can't help, but want to labor more abundantly than they all. I don't labor for my salvation. I labor because of my salvation. I I, I work because I'm so grateful for the love of Jesus Christ in my life. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, I'm laboring for you, but I hope my labor is not in vain. In other words, if you don't turn back to the grace of God, my labor is in vain in a sense. If you continue on with this works-based faith, that tells me that perhaps you were never saved to begin with. So he pleads, turn back to the grace of God. Reject this false gospel that these Judaizers have been preaching to you. He goes on, Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Paul says, I want you to become like me. Paul gave them a godly example to follow. He didn't just tell them what it meant to follow Jesus. He showed them what it meant to follow Jesus. And Paul isn't claiming perfection here. In Philippians 3.12, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. Paul was was amazing. He was a powerful apostle, but he wasn't perfect. However, he could tell this church, and he tells the church in Corinth too, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He, He had enough confidence in his relationship with the Lord that he could tell other people, if you follow my example, you'll be better off for it. Can you tell people that? Not that you're perfect, but ask yourself this. If people followed your lifestyle to a T, would they be better or worse? If people mimicked your relationship with God, would they have a closer relationship with God? Or a not as close relationship with God? Because this is what we're called to be as believers. We're called to be an example to the believer that I could say, "Hey, if people were really following my life, if, if they if they just stuck by my side 24/7, yeah, they might see me get upset sometimes, they're not going to see me live this life out perfectly, but if they followed my life to a T, I should be able to say that they'd actually grown their relationship with God, that they would be better off if they followed my example than if they didn't." This is what Paul is saying. I urge you to become like me. Uh, I'm not perfect, but if you imitate me, you're going to be better off in your relationship with God. Imitate me. Imitate me in my consistency. See, Paul, he never turned away from the grace of God. They turned away from the grace of God. Though he wasn't perfect, he never turned his back on God. God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for people who will wholeheartedly follow him. That's what he's looking for. For people that will never turn their back on him. That though they may slip up, once they put the hand to the plow, they're never looking back. That's what he's looking for. Consistency. And and imitate my freedom. Remember, Paul was a man living the life of freedom that's offered through the gospel. And these believers fell back into this yoke of bondage. They, They fell back into this legalistic, idolatrous religiosity. He says, hey, hey, hey. There's freedom in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If you follow Me, you'll understand what that freedom looks like. You don't have to live in this bondage anymore. Christ died so that you wouldn't have to live in this bondage anymore. He says, verse 12, I urge you to become like Me, for I became like you. Of all people, Paul knows what it's like to struggle with legalism and religiosity, right? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He said he he was zealous for the traditions of his father, so it wasn't just the law, it was everything that was added to the law by the Jews. He he was zealous about these things. He, He knows what it's like to come from a life of bondage under the law. And Jesus Christ didn't just save him from his sins, he saved them from the bondage of his legalism. That's what he saved Paul from. Both those things. He saved them from his religious lifestyle. So Paul can relate to these believers. He knows what it's like to struggle with religiosity. But not only that, he's relating to the people. He's relating to them. I became like you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-23, to 23, uh paraphrase paul says to the jew i became as a jew um to the greek i became uh, as a greek i I become all things to all men so that by all means some might get saved he's not saying that he's being a man pleaser he's not saying that he's being fake he's saying that he's being relatable he's meeting people where they're at and for the galatians these churches it was the same when he came to them he respected their culture he respected their traditions He met them where they were at, so that some of them might be saved. He says, verse 12, you have not injured me at all. Paul, he makes it clear, though he's upset, and he's clearly upset. He's saying, I'm not taking this personally. This is really between you and God. I'm trying to bring you back to the Lord. I'm trying to turn you back to Jesus Christ. But I'm not taking this personally. You haven't injured me. Though I'm hurt, my heart is hurt. Not because I'm taking it personally. My heart is hurt because you're turning away from the grace of God. Paul had spiritual maturity. He knew it wasn't about him. They weren't doing this despite him. They were rejecting Jesus himself. Galatians four thirteen. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first in my trial, which was in my flesh. You did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So, Paul came to preach in the region of Galatia. He says because of an infirmity. He he came there because of an infirmity. Okay, We don't know what this infirmity is. We know that while he was in the region of Galatia the first time, there in Acts chapter 14 at the end, he got stoned while he was there uh, the disciples actually thought he was died. He, he was dead. He, he might have died. but he says it was before that. He, he came there because of an infirmity. Some believe this infirmity had to do uh, with his eyes because later on I'll say you're willing to, to give me your eyes. Um, some say it was some form of malaria. Uh, some say that it was some injuries that he had from previous suffering. Uh, we have no idea what this specific infirmity was. But he says, because of this infirmity, uh, I came to you. And he says, verse 14, In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. This is the important part. Despite Paul's physical infirmity, the church still received him. It, he saw brotherly love in this church. They received Him in the beginning. Now, they're sort of rejecting Him and His message and His Gospel and questioning His apostleship. Now, this is a big deal. Why? Because in all three primary cultures during this time period, for the Jew, for the Greek, and for the Roman, if you had a physical infirmity like leprosy or blindness or whatever the case may be, they thought that was because you were being judged by God or whatever gods that specific location worshipped. So if you had a physical infirmity, that meant that you didn't have the favor of God on your life. That, that God didn't love you. That God didn't want you. That you did something that displeased God. So Paul coming with this infirmity culturally, they would have likely rejected him. You got this infirmity. Obviously God doesn't love a wretch like you. You're sick. You're blind or whatever it is. You got malaria. You've been abused. Whatever. But they received Him. They recognized that there was something to the Gospel of grace. And the Bible teaches us clearly that infirmities and, and sicknesses, they don't happen just because God doesn't love the individual. He doesn't care for the individual. We do see that certain sicknesses are brought upon ourselves. But generally speaking, sickness is a product of sin of this world. But we also see Jesus in John chapter 9, he helps clarify something that the disciples believed as well the same mentality. Somebody has a sickness. They said, This guy that's blind, is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Is he suffering for their sin or is he suffering for his own sin? And Jesus said, Neither. This guy's suffering so that the glory of God will be revealed in his life and he ends up healing this man for blindness. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he pleads with the Lord three times that this infirmity would depart from him. He can heal other people. People are getting healed by touching Paul's cloak, and yet he can't heal himself. He's probably like, wearing the cloak, like, why why can't I get healed? It ain't happening. So he pleads with the Lord three times. God won't heal him. Why? Why? God says, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Maybe you're going through a physical infirmity right now. Maybe you got a a sickness and for some reason you're questioning God's love for you. God, why would you let this happen to me? This injury that I'm facing, this sickness that's going on with me or with my friend or my family member. Lord, do you not love me? Do you not love them? Do you not care? Where's your favor, God? He says, my grace is sufficient Sufficient for you. My favor was displayed for you on the cross. No matter what infirmity, no matter what sickness, no matter what pain you face in the present, I promise you a future where there is no more pain. There is no more sickness. There is no more sorrow. There is no more sin. When you get to this place that I prepared for you, you're going to look at that infirmity and go, That was nothing. That was for this. Little bleep moment in time, and now I get to experience perfection. I get to experience paradise forever. So he commends this church because they received him. They didn't reject him, which culturally was what many people did during that time period. And then he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 15, What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to Me. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? Uh, what was literally the joy that you enjoyed? He's trying to bring them back to the moment of salvation when they received the Lord as their Savior. Remember the joy that you experienced when you first accepted the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, remember. Remember. Remember, when you first received Jesus Christ, the joy that you had in your heart, oh my gosh, God loves a wretch like me. You were reborn. You were created new. You saw the world with a different perspective. Everything was different. There was an excitement. There was a zeal. There was a joy. You still got it? Where is it? Where's the joy? Did you lose it? If you lost your joy, know that you didn't lose it because it left you. If you lost your joy, you left it. Why? Because of the joy that we experience as believers, this joy, it has a name. And His name is Jesus Christ. And the joy that we experience as believers, we only experience through fellowship with Him. We only experience through abiding in Him. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and we only bear fruit by abiding, John 15 tells us. Joy is a person, and His name is Jesus. And Jesus, He promises, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will stand by your side through thick and thin. So if we are not experiencing joy in our life, don't believe the lie that Jesus took a step back. It's us. We took the step back. That we stepped outside of the relationship somewhere along the line. And now I'm growing discontent. I'm growing bitter. I'm growing envious. I'm growing whatever. Jesus says, you want to experience the joy? Just step back into fellowship. Abide in Me. Remain in Me. Seek Me like You first sought Me. Remember the blessing that you received when you first accepted the Gospel. Literally, remember the joy. God wants us to continue with that joy. The joy doesn't leave us. We leave it. So He says, I want you... I want you to remember this joy. Why? Because they're not experiencing joy anymore. They're in bondage. They're in bondage to idolatry. They're in bondage to religiosity. They're in bondage to legalism. He says, For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Well, that wouldn't have done much good, right? If they plucked out their eyes and given them to Paul. Uh, this gives us an indication, as I mentioned earlier, that the infirmity may have uh, had something to do with his eyes. In Acts chapter 9, remember the scales fall off his eyes. We can't say for sure, but culturally speaking, uh, the eye was considered a man or woman's most valuable possession. And this is what he's getting at. He says, when you first received the joy of the gospel, you were willing not only to forsake all and follow Jesus, you were willing to give up anything and everything to support me in my ministry. You were willing to give up everything because you knew the gospel that I preached to you was real. It was legit. And in an instant, in a moment when you accepted it, it changed your life forever and, and you were no longer attached to the things of this world. You were willing to give it all up. You are willing to give everything. Even your own eyes. He says, this is how it started. How would you get carried away? Where have you been? Why are you turning back to the old lifestyle? Why don't you return back to the grace and the love and the joy of your father? He continues, verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth they don't want to to hear this correction. They don't want to hear the truth. And this is true for many. People don't like to hear the truth when the truth is that they need to change. When the truth is that that they need to be corrected, that there's an error in their walk, that there's an error in their ways, there's an error in, in what they're talking about. Maybe they're gossiping. There's an error in the way that they're walking. Maybe they're falling into idolatry like the church here says, you think I'm your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? I'm not your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. I'm your brother in Christ because I'm telling you the truth. In other words, I'm telling you the truth because I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you the truth. I wouldn't care. He says, I tell you the truth because I love you. Sometimes when we speak the truth into people's life, they think we're their enemy. They take it personally. They corrected me because they don't like me. They're mean to me. They pick on me. Whatever the case may be. But it's really pride deceiving that person from receiving the truth that's being communicated into their life. Because people that truly love you will speak the truth into your life. People, If you've got people in your life, friends, family members, that just uh, all, you, all they do is tell you what you want to hear, then they don't love you like they should love you. People that really love you aren't afraid to tell you the truth. Paul loved them enough to tell them the truth. Sometimes when you tell people the truth, they deflect, right? They point it back at you. Well, you did this. Well, you did that. What's that again? It's pride in our hearts. If we want to continue to grow, we've got to receive the truth. This, the churches here in Galatia are struggling receiving the truth, but if they don't receive the truth, if they don't receive correction, then not only will they not grow, but many of them are going to be damned. Because we see they turned away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on, Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Paul tells them, yeah, they got zeal. The Judaizers got zeal. But their zeal is misplaced. They're not zealous for you so that you'll follow the Lord. They're zealous for themselves so that they can gain a following. They just want people to follow them. They have zeal for themselves. It's misplaced zeal. They don't care about what happens to you. He says they want to exclude you. The word exclude literally means to lock up. They want to bring you to a place of bondage. They want to bring you back under the bondage of the law. Christianity is the opposite. Christianity isn't trying to Get people to, to to follow you. It's not trying to 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 create this great following, this this megachurch. Not that there's anything wrong with megachurches in general. But the whole point of the Christian faith is not to get people to follow other people specifically, it's to get people to follow Jesus Christ specifically. Now that can happen through people following other people. We see that with the disciples, and we're called the be disciples that make disciples. But bottom line, the Judaizers were just trying to gain a following so people could follow them so that they could make a name for themselves. But the Christian faith is not about making a name for ourselves. It's about exalting the name of the Lord. So he says in verse 18, But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always and not only when I am present with you. He clarifies. Zeal in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's good to be zealous in a good thing. As long as your zeal isn't misplaced. We're called to be zealous for the Lord. We're called to be, Titus 2.14, zealous for good works. We should have zeal. We should have passion for the Lord. There should be that fire under us that we get excited about spending time with Jesus. We get excited about coming to church. We get excited about serving the Lord. That should be there. He says it's good to be zealous in good things always. But look what he says here. Verse 18, And not only when I'm present with you. He says, if your zeal is only present when I'm present, then it's false zeal. It's insincere. The sincerity of our zeal for the Lord can only be measured when we're in the secret place with the Lord. okay, That's where the real zeal is measured. It's not just uh, coming up on a stage and preaching a message. It's not just the conversations that we have with people in a group setting or a home group setting or a one-on-one setting. If that zeal is legit, that zeal is going to be found in the secret place. That zeal is going to be the same zeal that you have when you pray to the Lord. That zeal is going to be the same zeal that you have when you read your Bible. The zeal that we have for the Lord in front of people, if that same zeal isn't found in the secret place when we're spending time with the Lord alone, then it's insincere. It's not real, it's false, it's all putting on a show, it's the men pleaser thing, the man pleaser thing. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter three, verse twenty two. He says, bond servants, obeying all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Do you have zeal in the secret place in the Lord? With the Lord. Do you get excited about waking up in the morning and getting alone with Jesus? Because if you have zeal about anything, that's what you should have zeal for. And then the zeal that you have of, uh, when it comes to talking about Jesus or, or, or praying for other people or, or sharing Jesus with another unbeliever or even a believer. If that zeal for the Lord is there during your quiet time with the Lord, whatever that looks like for you, then when you have that zeal carried over to these other encounters that you have with people, it's gonna be contagious. It's gonna be real, it's gonna be powerful, it's gonna be life-changing. Because that fire, that zeal, fire isn't meant to stay in one place. Fire, what does it do? It spreads. Our God is a consuming fire. If I'm if I'm finding that quiet time and 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 having passion. Uh, about my pursuit of the Lord, then I'm going to catch fire. And guess what? Some other people are going to catch fire too. Uh, But if you're not on fire in your relationship with the Lord, then that fire is going to not only be put out in your life, but it very well may be put out in the lives of the people that you're closest to, the people that you're spending the most time with. He says, it's good to be zealous but make sure it's legit. Make sure it's sincere. It continues on. Last two verses. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again till Christ is formed in you. He says, I'm going through labor pains and my efforts to invest into you so that you'll be transformed into the image of Christ. This is the fourth and final point. Discipleship is painful, but worth it. Discipleship is painful, but worth it. He likens his investment into them. He likens it to a woman giving birth to a child. He says it's that painful. <laughs> I don't know what that pain is like. Some of the ladies in this room are like, you have no idea. Like Paul, you are not a woman. You have no place to be saying something like this. But he gives this illustration. Why? Because it's one of the most painful experiences on the face of the earth. Giving pain to a child? I've only watched it. I've never experienced it. I never will. But he says this is what it's like. It it takes work. It takes effort. It takes energy. Both sides of discipleship. Being invested into can be painful. And investing into others can be painful. Have we counted the cost? Because here's the reality. Paul says, I'm going through, in other words, spiritual labor pains of in my investment into you. But it's not in vain. If a child of God is born, if a child of God is transformed into the image of Christ, none of this time, none of this effort, none of this pain, none of this energy is a waste. If one person is being transformed into the image of Christ, now, maybe you are investing into someone in your life, or maybe you're praying for someone in your life. Maybe maybe it's been a painful process. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of kickback. There's a lack of reception. Uh, maybe you're praying for an unbeliever, and you're spending so much time and effort and energy, and your heart is just crushed just when you think that they might be close. Then here comes another... Uh, obstacle and they seem further and further away from ever accepting a relationship with the Lord and it's painful. Here's the reality. Even the chance of them being transformed into the image of Christ is worth the pain. It's worth the pain. Even the chance. See, love, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He says, hey, both your reception of discipleship and your investment into others in regards to discipleship—it's going to be painful, like giving birth to a child. But when the child comes out, it's all going to be worth it. Well, what do we know? When children get born, sometimes hey, a woman she goes through she goes through childbirth, and what comes out this this beautiful baby boy or girl, and then sadly but truly. There are other times this woman goes through all this labor, all this pain, and what comes out is stillborn. That's the reality. Of being called to make disciples, sometimes you go through so much pain, so much effort, so much energy, and nothing really comes out of it. The person stays dead spiritually. They they never accept the Lord truly into their life. They never change. They never grow. Either way. If a thousand kids die and one is alive and one is transformed into the image of Christ and the labor pains are worth it. This is what he's striving for. Why? Because this is God's goal for each and every one of us. That's God's goal. Everything in our life is centered around this, that we'd be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. As a good father would. This is what he desires for every one of his children and He uses every single thing in our life to make this happen. That is His number one goal, that we would be molded and shaped into the image of His perfect Son. If that's His priority, then that should be our priority. That that I'm doing my part that I'm responding to this transforming work and I'm working out what He's working in, uh, but also that, that I'm investing into other people so that they might be transformed into the image of Christ because this is God's goal for the church, that we'd be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But it takes pain. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes work. Paul says, I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like, verse 20, to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Paul says, I wish I could be with you and I wish I could change my tone because I know I'm being kind of harsh. But here's the reality, I have doubts about you. In other words, he says, I don't even know if some of you are saved. Uh, I really don't know if you've all really accepted the Lord. Based on the lifestyle that you're living It's a question mark. I'm really not sure. I have doubts about your salvation. So this is why I'm upset. He's angry, but he has righteous indignation because he's concerned about their eternal destiny. So, So he pleads, he begs, he urges. Hey, yeah, I wish I could be there with you. Right now I can't. I want you to understand my tone is not coming from this place of trying to beat you down it's coming from this place where i'm really trying to build you up i I, I don't want to question your salvation I, i want you to be secure in your salvation and i want to be secure in your salvation he's concerned for him there's nothing more concerning than someone who believes that they're right with the lord and they're not okay it's one of the most terrifying things on earth it's one thing to know you're not right with god but to think that you're right with God when you're really not, that is a terrifying state to be. And these believers guarantee you, many of them thought that they were right with God. And Paul tells them, you're not. I have doubts about you. I'm concerned about you. You've turned away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But guess what? There's good news. I'll take you back right now. Just turn back to the grace of Jesus Christ. To Turn back to the Lord. Just as we see in the prodigal son, Though the son recognizes he he doesn't deserve to be treated like a son, he deserves to be treated like a slave, nevertheless, he, he turns to the father, and the father runs after him. He embraces him with open arms. He doesn't treat him like a slave. He treats him like a king. He puts the robe on him. He gives him the ring. He gives him the sandals. He says, just turn back to me. Turn back to the grace of God. Find your joy again. Turn away from the legalism. Turn away from the idolatry. God's got something so much more for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace in our life. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be honest with ourselves, Lord. If there are these struggles in our hearts like there are like there were in the churches in Galatia, the the idolatry and the legalism and religiosity. God, I pray that you would bring those things to the surface, God, that we would acknowledge them, that we would turn from them, that we would turn back to your grace, God, that if we've gotten away from your joy, Lord, that we would turn back to your joy, knowing that comes only through fellowship with you. Lord, we know that we can only be saved by grace through faith. We know we cannot earn our salvation. We can only receive it. God, but I pray that you would continue to teach us what grace is supposed to produce in us, Lord, that we would be people zealous for good works, that we would desire time with you, that we would desire to be transformed into your image. I pray that you would bless every single person here today, that you would continue to transform them, that you would transform me. God, that we would leave here different. Lord, so bless the rest of our day. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.